0: Welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of film. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Todd Haynes' 2002 film, Far From Heaven. I love it. It's an homage to the melodramas of the 1950s. It's set in 1957 and it stars Julianne Moore as Kathy Whitaker, a housewife whose husband Frank, played by Dennis Quaid, is struggling with his homosexuality as her marriage starts to crumble. She develops a very deep connection to her gardener, Raymond Deacon. He's played by Dennis Haysbert. He's African-American. And their relationship causes a scandal in the Hartford, Connecticut community where Kathy lives. There are spoilers in this episode. I talk about everything in the film, including the ending. So I recommend that you watch the film first and then listen to this episode. I talk about melodrama, Douglas Sirk, Reiner Werner Fassbender... And also, how the film looks at race, gender, and sexuality. At its heart, I really believe this film is about the power of connecting to another person, and I talk at length about that. I hope that you'll stick around and listen to the full episode and enjoy it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis, and you can access rewards and extras like extra episodes and merchandise and much more. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herhead in films. That's patreo slash herhead films. At one level you get a shout out on each episode, so I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much. If financial support isn't an option for are you please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. Please give me five stars on iTunes. I'd be really appreciative of that. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you can follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Her Head and Films and I'll pop up, but you can also find links to all those social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I won't talk anymore. Let's go ahead and get into this episode and let's talk about Far From Heaven. I adore this film and I'm really excited to bring you this in-depth discussion of the film and to share all of my thoughts and feelings and emotions. There are tears, so just be prepared. Here we go. to talk about Far From Heaven. This is a film that I have really intense memories of watching for the first time, and I feel like I say this about every film that I cover on the podcast. I tell you, like, my memory is so strange. Like, I can't even tell you things that happened to me a week ago, but a film that I saw 10 years ago, and like what was happening to me in that moment when i was watching the film i can remember it so crisply and so and so clearly i don't remember everything about seeing far from heaven but it was quite a few years ago I don't know how many. I want to say that it was streaming on Netflix at the time. I could be wrong. It may have been that I got it from the DVD Netflix thing because years ago, I did that for a little while. I did the Netflix DVD and I remember some of the films that I watched through it and so it was either streaming on Netflix or I got it on DVD and saw it. Of course, it's a sublime, stunning film visually, aesthetically, and I'm sure that's what enchanted me at the time. I know it was. I'm just, I'm a sucker for beautiful films. They are like my weakness, even if maybe the substance of the film is not there. If it's aesthetically beautiful, I tend to immediately fall in love with it. But I think that with Far From Heaven, we have, we certainly have the look and the aesthetic, and we also have the substance, I think, with this film. I remember it being a really emotional experience, especially especially the ending, which I will definitely be talking about and going really deep into. And I remember being really enchanted by Autumn in this film. Even now, when, it, when Autumn comes, I think about Far From Heaven. I will never forget the colors of the leaves, the reds, and the oranges, and the yellows, because this takes place in Connecticut. So you have this vibrant autumn in New England, right? So for me, this film always conjures the fall. Always. And it's interesting how certain films do that for me. Uh, For instance, Jonathan Glazer's film Birth. There's this really amazing opening scene of that film that shows a person jogging, I think in Central Park, during the winter where there's snow. And so every time there's snow now, I think about birth. I think about that film immediately. And I think it's an example of the way that films can really weave themselves into your life and they become inextricable from your life. Films become these memories for you and they sort of invade your memories so that when you're looking at the snow or you're looking at autumn leaves, immediately a film is conjured through that. And so Far From Heaven is just... It's just like that for me, that when the fall comes, I think of this film. Another important thing about this film for me was that it introduced me to the filmmaker Douglas Sirk, and I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. I didn't really know anything about Douglas Cirque up to that point until I saw Far From Heaven, and I read that Far From Heaven was an homage to Sirk. And so I got interested in his work and I ended up watching Far From Heaven, not Far From, I'm just going to warn you right now that sometimes I may say Far From Heaven when I mean all that heaven allows. I keep getting them mixed up. I'm going to try not to do that. But if it slips and it happens, I apologize. All that Heaven Allows is by Douglas Sirk. He also did Imitation of Life, Magnificent Obsession, Written on the Wind. I've seen all of them. I love his color films. I love that technicolor, that dreaminess, the way you just are swept away by the colors of his films and the emotions and... oh. I can't even put into words how much I love Douglas Sirk, and I would not have probably found Sirk, or maybe it would have taken me longer if I had not encountered Far From Heaven. It was just this really central film for me in leading me to Douglas Sirk. And this is another thing that I love about films, is the way that certain films can be catalysts. I love how certain films might get me interested in an artist, or might get me interested in a writer. Uh, The films that come to mind are, for instance, uh, the Julie Taymor biopic about Frida Kahlo called Frida. That was a really big way that I discovered Frida Kahlo's art. Or I think of maybe The Hours. Both the book and the film were ways that I came across the work of Virginia Woolf. So it's just really fascinating to me the way films can do this. And some films can lead you to other filmmakers. And that's what Far From Heaven did for me, is that it led me to the work of Douglas Sirk. And so it was really important in that way. So Far From Heaven, it's not just an homage to Douglas Sirk, though. It's an homage to quite a few things. Uh, It's also connected to Reiner, Werner, Fassbender's Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. I'm going to speak about that film in a moment. Uh, Haynes was very influenced by Fassbender. Fassbender himself was influenced by Douglas Sirk. And Douglas Sirk was an admirer of Fassbender. So all of this is interconnected. And the film is also an homage to melodrama. The melodramas of the 1950s and the women's pictures as well that were made in classic Hollywood. So first I want to talk about melodrama. I think it's important to talk about where Todd Haynes got his inspiration for this film. And so I'm going to uh, go through each of those things. Melodramas, women's pictures, Douglas Sirk and Fassbender and some of those films they made just to give you a sense of how far from heaven is in dialogue with these films that came before it. And I think that's something very fascinating about the film is that it doesn't just stand alone. It obviously does. You can appreciate the film without having any knowledge of these other influences or inspirations but I think it's kind of fun and interesting to explore them to in, to explore those interconnections and those influences I, I like that because then you can you can make other discoveries you watch far from heaven and then you watch Douglas Sirk and I also watched Fassbender's Ollie Fear Eats the Soul for the first time so that I could do this episode because I wanted to be aware of these films And I learned more about melodrama and women's pictures. I'm not going to give you a detailed history of them, but it was just for myself, for my own knowledge, my own desire to learn about these things. And in the process of researching this episode, I actually realized that melodrama is a genre of film. It's sort of like a subgenre or something like that, I guess, that I enjoy. I guess I had never conceptualized it that way. You know, I knew that I liked classic Hollywood films. I knew that I liked film noir a bit. You know, I'm not attached to genre that much. I wouldn't say that I overly think about it. I I tend to just gravitate towards certain films for whatever reason. But in the process of my research, I realized, wow, I really like melodrama. (laughs) Like, I love Douglas Sirk. I love these films about women. I love films that are about emotions and feelings and that connect to us in that way. So it was kind of a revelation for me to realize that. And I ended up making this list of sort of classic melodrama films or just sort of highlights of the melodrama genre that I would really like to see. And so I've made a list out for myself and I hope to watch as many of them as I can. And sometimes just creating these episodes can be really life-changing where I make these realizations about my own film taste and the things that I'm attracted to I don't think about film in academic ways or in really overly intellectual ways. So I don't think you know when I'm watching Fassbender or I'm watching Cirque I'm not really thinking of it in terms of genre or the history of cinema or things like that. But I just had this revelation and it's interesting to me. So I want to talk about melodrama films, what they are Because it's really important to understand that in in order to, I think, to appreciate the film and what it's trying to do. That it's trying to take artifice, I guess you could say. It's trying to take some of these things from Cirque's films, from the melodramas, the women's pictures of the 1950s. And it's using that film language to tell us a story that's very rich and deep and emotional And the whole time you're watching, you know that it's artifice, but it is evoking these very deep emotions in you. It's a very self-aware type of film, I think. And Todd Haynes has said that, said as much in interviews. In an interview with Anthony Kaufman in 2002, Todd Haynes said that, quote, "...people talk about this film in relation to sincerity versus irony, but I think it's different." I think it's about the intense feelings that only come from synthetic film language, that only come from artificial experiences that we know from film, but we nevertheless invest with intense feeling, unquote. And Haynes talks a bit about the artifice in Douglas Sirk's films. Um, He told John Silberg in an interview in 2002, quote, Cirque's films do have artificial elements, exquisitely rendered lighting, the clothes, the decor, and all of those things we think of as archly fake, but they tell incredibly simple stories about domestic crises that concern people who are very ordinary, despite how gorgeously they dress and move. They're not heroic, they don't overcome their problems and change the world, they're really victims of their society, and that makes them shockingly real. Unquote. and also in terms of the artifice of this film and of those those melodramas of the 1950s Sirk said some Haynes said something very fascinating to me something that I've still been thinking about actually he said quote films aren't real they're completely constructed all forms of film language are a choice and none of it is the truth with this film we point out at the start that we're aware of all this We're not using today's conventions to portray what's real. What's real is our emotions when we're in the theater. If we don't have feeling for the movie, then the movie isn't good for us. If we do, then it's real and moving and alive, And this is something that I think I myself struggle with when I'm watching film, is that I know that it's constructed, that it's manufactured, that it is artificial, that it is not real. And yet when I'm experiencing it, it is incredibly real. If it's a great film for me, if it's an emotionally resonant film that I connect to, then in that moment, it it transcends itself in a way. It is more than a film. It is deeply interconnected with my own life at that point. And that's always what I'm trying to explain in each episode. Like the thing is, is that you could watch Far From Heaven and you're going to have a completely different experience from me you're going to bring your own life and memories and emotions and intellect to the film. You're going to see things that I don't see. You're going to feel things that I don't feel. We're, We're both watching the same film. We're both watching this manufactured thing and we're having completely different experiences with it. And that's always fascinated me how we interact with art, how it affects our lives as we watch it, and then after we finish it. I think that's actually really fascinating. But I loved this idea of Haynes acknowledging the artificiality of the film. You know, if you think about the way Julianne Moore acts in it, the way everybody acts in it, you know, they're using the stuff that you see from the 1950s, from films made back then. That language, you know, those choices that are made the colors in the film are not real just like with Douglas Sirk's films the colors are not natural sometimes they're garish sometimes they're deeply vibrant I'm thinking of the blues in all that heaven allows like that is an unearthly blue and you see that blue recur through far from heaven so we're we're entering into this thing that is not real and that is outside of the everyday, outside of the ordinary, and yet we can still have a really emotional experience with it. You, I think it's it's important to be open to the film in that way, that it's it's purposely engaging with that sort of 1950s aesthetic, but it's going deeper into it. It's talking about things that you couldn't really put on the screen in the 1950s, but it's using that language and that aesthetic, So what are melodrama films? I think we say melodrama. We say things are melodramatic and we don't necessarily understand what that means. I certainly didn't. So according to filmsite.org, quote, melodrama films are a subtype of drama films characterized by a plot to appeal to the heightened emotions of the audience. Melodramatic plots with heart-tugging, literally tear-jerking, Emotional plots usually emphasize sensational situations or crises of human emotion. Failed romance or friendship, strained familial situations, tragedy, illness, loss, neuroses, or emotional and physical hardships within everyday life. Victims, couples, virtuous and heroic characters, or suffering protagonists, usually heroines, in melodramas are presented with tremendous social pressures, Threats, repression, fears, improbable events or difficulties with friends, community, work, lovers, or family. The melodramatic format allows the characters to work through their difficulties or surmount the problems with resolute endurance, sacrificial acts, and steadfast bravery." So really in a nutshell melodrama is about emotion and feeling. That's what it appeals to. That's what it engages with. It's often said in a pejorative way, and I think it's a feminized word. I think it's a feminized sort of category, and that obviously things that are by uh, that are about women's lives or about the emotional uh, which tends to be feminized is obviously devalued. And so I think we see how melodramatic films, melodrama itself has been sort of denigrated over the course of film history. Like I said earlier, I've realized I actually love this genre. I love melodramatic films. And I think that I would say that's what I grew up with. I watched a lot of melodramatic films when I was a kid. Whether it was like the Lifetime movies, the made-for-TV movies of the 1990s, or just things like maybe something like Still Magnolias, The Way We Were. I mean, I think of those as sort of melodrama. I think of those as like deeply emotional films. and You know, I remember watching films that made me cry and and things like that, but then also romantic comedies, which is something different. But um, I think we're taught to sort of look down on melodrama, but somebody like Douglas Sirk or Fassbender or Todd Haynes and you know many other directors who have engaged with melodrama show that it's it's really a rich and rewarding genre. Far from Heaven also is influenced by the women's pictures, and Wikipedia says that the oh, the woman's film is a film genre which includes women-centered narratives, female protagonists, and is designed to appeal to a female audience. Women's films usually portray women's concerns such as problems revolving around domestic life, the family, motherhood, self-sacrifice, and romance. I haven't, I don't know if I've watched a lot of women's films I definitely would like to, I think, because I am always interested in women's lives on film, you know, on screen. Most of the episodes, if you go through them, I've done over 90 at this point, which is pretty wild. I would say almost every episode is about a woman. It may not be directed by a woman, but I am attracted to directors who center women's lives in their work, whether that's Max Ophel's or Douglas Sirk, or all kinds of different directors out there. I even think of somebody like Ingmar Bergman. He did quite a few films about women. You think of Cries and Whispers, Summer Interlude, The Silence. He had quite a few films about women. So I'm I'm always um, interested in directors that focus on women, or someone like Agnes Varda. And women's lives on screen are very important to me. And I would say most of the films that I watch tend to have female protagonists in them. And Far From Heaven is certainly in that that world of the woman's film. It's about a woman. It takes place in the domestic sphere. It's about a woman and her um, her crises and things that she is going through as a mother, as a wife, as a woman. In the 1980s, Todd Haynes first came across the work of Douglas Sirk and Reiner Werner Fassbender. He says that in, uh, in an interview that he did. I'll have all my sources in the show notes of this episode. I always put them in there. I always share my research and, and where I get this information. In the 1980s, that's when Haynes first comes across these two directors and he was obviously really influenced by them. And so Douglas Sirk, I just wanted to give a sense of Douglas Sirk. Obviously, I can't go really deep into his life. Perhaps one day I'll do a standalone episode about Cirque or explore more of his films. But he was born in 1897 and he died in 1987. He left Nazi Germany in 1937 before the outbreak of World War II, which was in 1939. And he went to Hollywood and he started to make films. He's known for his melodramas. His most well-known films are All That Heaven Allows, Imitation of Life, and Magnificent Obsession, as well as Written on the Wind. I've seen all of them and love all of them. He also did black and white films. I still need to watch more of those. I I just fell so in love with his Technicolor films that it's sort of been harder for me to watch the black and white. Or I guess they haven't interested me as much, but I need to. I really do. So Richard Brody is probably my favorite living film critic. I always love Richard's work, even if I don't always agree with him. I find that if he writes about a film, if he recommends a film, I am probably gonna like it and he really champions, I think, important work, and I usually end up loving any film that he writes about and praises. So I was really happy to see that Richard Brody is a fan of Douglas Sirk, and so he says that Sirk is, quote, the most intellectual filmmaker ever to work in Hollywood, unquote, and he also says of Sirk that, quote, he should be seen as the modern classicist that he is, working in the realm of mythology, but with suburbanites, vaudevillians, and pioneers replacing princes, queens, and gods, unquote. So, in All That Heaven Allows, this is a 1955 film. This is a really big influence on Far From Heaven. It stars Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman. Uh, Jane Wyman plays Carrie Scott. She's this older woman. She's a widow. And she falls in love with her gardener, who's played by Rock Hudson. His name's Rock his name is Ron Kirby and the two of them fall in love with each other and they end up having to deal with the extreme judgment of the town that they live in and it's not only about an age difference she is older than him but it's also about a class difference he's a gardener he's from a much more working class world and she is like this society woman, the way that Kathy Whitaker is in Far From Heaven. And so their relationship crosses a lot of lines in that way. And is is controversial and scandalous for that time period. And you'll see a lot of parallels with Far From Heaven. For instance, Rock Hudson being a gardener. And then Raymond in Far From Heaven is also a gardener. Raymond gives Kathy this plant or like these leaves or this branch. And I think that uh, Ron Kirby in All That Heaven Allows does the same. He gives the Jane Wyman character um, some kind of plant or shrub or something. And obviously the judgment of people and what they go through when they fall in love with each other. And then with Imitation of Life, that is a film that came out in 1959 and it looks at racism. It looks at the parallel lives really of Lana Turner who plays an aspiring actress named Laura Meredith, who has a daughter. Laura ends up having a black maid named Annie Johnson, played by Juanita Moore. Annie is raising her very light-skinned daughter, Sarah Jane. And a heartbreaking aspect of this film is Sarah Jane's passing as a white person. It's very important to her to pass and to make people think that she is white. She really rejects and repudiates um, her darker-skinned mother. I thought this was a very powerful film. It, It really lays bare the racism of that time period of America in the 1950s, and also the destructive cost of white supremacy. Just the the destruction itself of white supremacy, of what it does to people, what it does to families. Sarah Jane is just so obsessed with being white. It is all that she wants in life is to be white because she lives in a society that's told her that whiteness is all that matters, that whiteness is beautiful, that whiteness has value, you know. And it's heartbreaking, her relationship with her mother and the way that she treats her mother in the film. So the thing about Douglas Sirk is that his films are beautiful. They are absolutely stunning to look at, but they're also often very subversive in the way that they expose these issues Of race and gender and power. Of looking at the way women are treated. The way African Americans were treated. All of those important social issues. And I think that's made his films even more relevant over time. And at the time when he was making these films. I think he was sort of looked down on. He was just seen as making these uh, superficial melodramatic technicolor films. That didn't have a lot of substance. It took time for him to be re-evaluated by critics and other filmmakers. And I think now his reputation is pretty cemented as, you know, one of the finest classic Hollywood directors. I consider him that. I love his films. So another influence on Far From Heaven is Ali Fear Eats the Soul by Reiner Werner Fassbender. And he was a very prolific West German director. And he himself was inspired by Douglas Sirk. And Todd Haynes' talked about in an interview, the influence that Cirque had on Fassbender, that after Fassbender discovered Cirque, Fassbender's film started to change. He started to focus more on women. He started to focus more on minorities, on queer people, on just a diff- different groups of people than he had before I think he came in contact with Douglas Sirk. I don't know a lot about Fassbender. I've only seen Ali Fear Eats the Soul. He's certainly one of those directors that I need to watch more of. I did like Ali. I really did. Ali Fear Eats the Soul was influenced by All That Heaven Allows. But he changed it a bit. He tweaked it a bit. Ali Fear Eats the Soul's about an older woman named Emmy. And she falls in love with a young Moroccan immigrant named Ali. And so we see the age difference that was in All That Heaven Allows, but Fassbender injects race into it because Ollie is black. And he's also an immigrant, and that's part of it as well. The two of these people just deeply connect to each other. And it's a really beautiful film, actually. And they both get a lot of judgment from their communities because they fall in love with each other. And different things happen in the film. I'm not going to go into everything. They do feel this genuine connection to each other, but then have to deal with that judgment from the people around them and on their relationship. And so I definitely recommend it. I think if you love Far From Heaven and you haven't explored Douglas Cirque, I think you should. And then definitely throw in Ollie Fair Eats the Soul. I think, a, I think a really good double feature would probably be Far From Heaven and Ollie Fair Eats the Soul. Or make it a triple feature and add in all that heaven allows if you want, if you want to be adventurous. Now I'm just going to talk about Far From Heaven and share my thoughts and everything about it. I really love the way this film looks at race, sexuality, and gender. It's all there in this film. We have race through Kathy's relationship with Raymond. We have gender because we're looking at the life of a housewife in the 1950s before the feminist movement, before women's liberation, and the the repression and, and the sexism of that time period. And then we have sexuality in Kathy's husband, Frank, who is a man struggling with his homosexuality in the 1950s. So there's so much in this film. It's set in Hartford, Connecticut in the 1950s, specifically in 1957. And then it transitions into 1958 after Christmas and the New Year. Elm, I have to mention the the soundtrack for this film. It perfectly evokes the 1950s. It's not just the colors of this film and the cinematography. That's absolutely stunning, but the music by Elmer Bernstein really gorgeous, and I listen to the score a lot. I think it's really beautiful. I-, I didn't notice the first time I watched it, but Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney are executive producers on this film. I just thought that was fascinating. I don't know why I didn't notice it the first time I saw it years and years ago. I tell you, when this film started, and I saw the what the title card—I think that's what they call it—where it says "Far from Heaven." Immediately, I was already crying. (laughs) My eyes were filling with tears because I remembered uh, my previous experience with the film and how emotional it made me. And I've been struggling lately. You know, I struggle with depression and anxiety. I struggle with uh, health issues. I struggle with a lot in my life. There was something really comforting about watching this film. I think it sort of came into my life at a time when I really needed it. And to see something beautiful on the screen like this and something so well written and just well made. I think this film is an experience unlike any other because I just can't name another film like this that so deeply and so beautifully evokes the 1950s. You know, that that uses that language that Douglas Sirk was using. Because that's done with. I mean, this is why people like classic movie fans like lament modern film. Is because when you watch those films from the 40s and the 50s. There's just this completely different world that they create. They're they're using film in a different way. The way people talk, the way they dress, everything is different about the films back then. Or you think of the musicals that were made. Think of, you know, A Star is Born with Judy Garland, right? They don't make films like that anymore. They're never going to make another film like Casablanca or Citizen Kane or Singing in the Rain, right? These films are just one of a kind, And they were made at a certain time when film was in its golden age. You know, the golden age of Hollywood. But Far From Heaven comes pretty darn close, I think, to recreating the way that movies were made back then. And I'm not saying that, you know, everything was perfect about that time period in films. It was obviously very oppressive, very limiting, the lack of people of color, you know, the the lack of women directors, all kinds of things were wrong in the 40s and 50s. But, um, but there is such a beauty about films from back then. There just are. And you know, when I watch an old noir or I watch something from the 40s, it's just, oh, it just takes me over. Or even something like Brief Encounter. I mean, that's a British film, but still, the way films were made back then, it's just those old black and white films, those classic Hollywood films, they give you such an intense feeling, an intense nostalgic feeling. And I think Far From Heaven just comes the closest that a modern film will probably ever get (laughs) to the feel and the texture of those films, but making it now in the 21st century. So Julianne Moore plays Kathy Whitaker, she's married to Frank Whitaker, who is played by Dennis Quaid, and Dennis Quaid gives probably the performance of his career. I mean, I don't, I haven't seen all of his films, but this was a very impressive performance, I thought. The cast is interesting. We have Viola Davis in a very early role for her, and we also have Patricia Clarkson, who plays Kathy's close friend, Eleanor. Viola Davis plays the maid, and her name is Sybil. And then Patricia Clarkson plays Eleanor. And this was sort of, I think, an early role for Patricia Clarkson as well. And She's recently really blown up with her career and the role that she did in Sharp Objects on HBO. So it's a it's a solid cast. It's a really great cast, actually. So Kathy Whitaker has this very picture-perfect life. It opens with the autumn leaves and her and her beautiful vehicle, her beautiful car, driving to her beautiful house. She's got two sweet children who adore her. She has a maid. She has a huge house and a nice suburb. But of course, all of this is going to be shattered. You know, we start with the perfection of this woman's life. And then over the course of the film, we're going to see what's under the surface of that. Like, what's really there behind this artifice? The way that she gradually loses a lot of that. And Julianne Moore is blonde in this film And she said in an interview that that was really important to her. Todd Haynes specifically wrote this role for Julianne Moore. They had previously worked together on the 1995 film Safe. And I have an episode about it because I love it. I think it's a masterpiece (laughs) by Todd Haynes. So they had worked previously together. And I, I think Julianne is sort of like a muse for Todd. And so he wrote it for her. And I think he did imagine her as a redhead. But she felt that it was really important to go blonde because she saw Kathy as sort of this all-American woman. This very optimistic, perfect American woman. And when you think of that, you think of blonde, right? She really insisted on that and that was really important to her. Frank is a successful sales executive, but he is starting to undergo a crisis Because of his sexuality. He is homosexual. And he is starting. He can't control it. It's just starting to become an issue for him. And I would say he is almost having like this crisis of masculinity in a way in the film. He is. He's arrested by the police. I. It wasn't clear to me what had happened. He mentions like some loitering. I don't know if maybe he was picked up. If he was trying to pick up men. I'm not quite sure so she has to go to the the police station so already as the film begins there are cracks in this facade and those cracks will get deeper and deeper as the film goes on but even though those cracks are there Kathy will continue to try to she will continue to try to hide the ugly things in her marriage and the things that are going on. She will keep trying to put her best foot forward, her best face to the public and maintain this facade and maintain this idea that her and Frank are the perfect American couple. And when you think of the 1950s, you really think of it as a time of this repressed emotion, a time of intense conformity when any deviation from the norm was noticed and judged. We will see that in this film that just deviating slightly from those things brings just immense consequences. Kathy's life really changes I think when she meets Raymond. At first she is startled by him because he is a black man and he's in her yard. And she goes out there and she's very worried about it at first. She finds out that he is Raymond Deacon. And he has taken over for his father who has died. His father was with landscaping and gardening. And so Raymond is her new gardener. And he's played by Dennis Haysbert who is a wonderful actor. Dennis really gives a great performance. Everybody is at the top of their game in this film. And so she's talking to Raymond And, you know, she's heard that his father has died. And she obviously wants to be compassionate towards him. And she puts her hand on his shoulder to convey her condolences. At the time, there's like this woman there with a photographer. And they're interviewing her for the local newspaper, the local gazette. And they see her do this. And so this is the first in a line of deviant acts that she will do. You know, these very scandalous things of putting your hand on his shoulder. Being in proximity or just talking to a black man and she is a white woman, even though it's in the north, even though it's Connecticut, it's still looked down upon. It's still very scandalous for that time period just as homosexuality is scandalous for that time period. People don't even know how to talk about it. And homosexuality at the time, it was unspoken, and it was conveyed through very coded language and coded gestures we see Frank go to like a movie theater. He sees these two men and they go into a gay bar and he follows them. So obviously, if you were gay in that time period, you maybe knew about these secret places where gay men would meet, where you could engage with your desire because it was seen as unnatural and criminal, really. So Frank is exploring his desire. The thing about Frank is that you have immense compassion for him that here is this man trapped in this time period where he really cannot be himself the self-hatred that he must feel but at the same time throughout the film he's very hurtful towards Kathy that's a fascinating thing about the film Todd Haynes I think has commented on it in some interviews that the characters are not perfect they are imperfect they're messy in that way you can be a victim and you can hurt other people I see Frank as a victim. A victim of his time period. But at the same time, he's also very sort of sexist and chauvinistic and at times violent towards Kathy. Sometimes people are both, right? I love the relationship between Kathy and Raymond. I think this is the emotional core of the film. Because we see Frank a little bit. We do see some of Frank's struggles. But But it's mainly every now and then. The core for me is Kathy and Raymond and the way that they come to know each other and the way that they cross these racial lines and cross these lines of difference and come to know each other and feel connected to each other. I think it starts pretty quickly. So there's this day where Kathy's scarf blows off. Her friends have come over and the wind takes it and carries it off. And Raymond happens to be there uh, in the yard and he finds her scarf and he gives it to her and they start to talk um, once Kathy is alone after her friends have left. And she finds out more about Raymond, that he has a little girl, that he himself is a widower. And in these exchanges with Raymond, Kathy talks to him like he's a person, not like he's a gardener who is below her with his working class life or as a black man, you know, who is different from her. I'm not saying Kathy is perfect when it comes to race. I'll talk about a few instances where obviously um, there is some racism and um, there's some discomfort um, around the, the issue of race. But I will say that it's a really beautiful thing the way that they talk to each other in this really open way almost immediately where you can tell that they do feel connected to each other and maybe they feel like safe in one another's company that they can open up to each other. And I think Kathy has immense compassion for him and emotion for him because he is a widower and he's raising his little girl alone. And I think there's just something about Raymond that moves her and that sort of tugs at her heartstrings. And this is where Far From Heaven, even though it's using the aesthetics and the film language of the 1950s, this is where it really deviates from those types of films Because those kinds of films back then only showed black people in domestic roles. They did not give black people starring roles in films. They weren't fleshed out in a lot of the movies. Far From Heaven makes Raymond like a multi-dimensional person. He has a daughter. He is a gardener. He has thoughts about modern art, right? he expresses himself he's emotional he's wise he's kind we actually get to hear him speak and and have a voice and say things and be a person in the film that that's an important thing i think even though the film is is influenced by those types of films from the 1950s it goes beyond that and it does things that films from that era could never have done in their own time, which is to look at homosexuality, and to look at um, racism, you know, in a really full and deep way, and also give black people autonomy and agency in the film, and give them an identity, and give them a voice. Kathy ends up finding out about Frank's homosexuality. She unexpectedly shows up at his office one day and sees him with a man sees him kissing and you can't imagine what she must be thinking this is a woman who probably doesn't even have the language for what she's seeing seeing two men kiss right and she's absolutely shocked and stunned because not only is her husband gay he's cheating on her as well and this precipitates frank going into therapy Uh, I guess to try to get rid of his homosexuality, it was probably sort of an early version of conversion therapy or something like that. And I have to say, I still think that's one of the cruelest things that I've ever heard of is conversion therapy. Of this idea that you can take a straight, uh, take a gay person and make them straight and the violence of that, the violence to a person's soul and being, and how just barbaric it is to me. And yet, I think conversion therapy still exists. I think people still go and do this or, or have their children undergo it. It's really horrific if you think about it. Frank sees his homosexually as like an illness. He says that it makes him feel despicable, and it causes a great deal of turmoil for him in which He starts to spiral out of control. He really starts to drink. He sort of becomes an alcoholic in the film. He becomes violent towards Kathy at times. Because of the turmoil that he is going under. um, Because of his homosexuality. And we get a sense of the view of homosexuals. In the film through Kathy's friend Eleanor played by Patricia Clarkson there's this very telling scene where they're talking about it for whatever reason and Eleanor really says that she doesn't even see homosexual men as real men. And of course, Kathy has to be quiet about Frank. And Kathy says that she hates the word homosexual, like she doesn't even like it. You know, these are women who don't even know how to talk about it, don't even know how to understand the idea that a man could love another man. And we won't even get into lesbianism, you know, that's probably even more beyond the pale for them. We see in the film uh, how certain groups of people are talked about. The way that homosexual people are talked about. Later on, I'll talk about um, a scene about race. And about the way the community looks at black people. And it's all very telling. It's obviously a film that's critiquing those ideas. And also what's disturbing is how a lot of that stuff remains with us. You know, racism is still an issue. Homophobia is still an issue. These things are not like neatly put away into the 1950s. And Todd Haynes actually said as much in an interview. And this is from that Anthony Kaufman interview in 2002. He said, quote, when most people see films set in the 50s today, there's an immediate sense of superiority. It's all about the myth that as time moves on, we become more progressive. Oh wow, they didn't know what sex was until we started to give it to them from our contemporary perspective. So the 50s become a sort of earmark point of oppressive politics and climate, which is very flattering to us as we look back, unquote. And something else that I found fascinating, I'll, I'll talk about what I just read in a, in a moment. Um, but in a BBC interview, in 2003. Haynes said that Cirque himself wished that he could have made a film about homosexuality. Haynes said, quote, when his book Cirque on Cirque was republished after Rock Hudson died, he was able to talk about Rock Hudson's sexuality. He talks about the struggle gay men had coming out and that he wishes he could have made a film about it in the 50s. It's clearly a theme that influenced him intellectually, and it was something that he found himself in the middle of, unquote. So part of why Haynes made this film, I think, is also to explore that idea of how would you talk about homosexuality in a film like this in the 1950s as well? There is this idea when we look back on that time period, when we look back on things in the 40s, 50s, even the 60s, that we are so much more progressive than the people back then were. I think a lot of us have been under that illusion for a while. And I think something like the 2016 election of Trump has made a lot of us realize that that's just not true. That progress is not inevitable and it's certainly not promised. We always um, are engaging in these struggles and in these fights for rights, for justice, for everybody to be seen as human and equal and like their lives matter. That fight continues. I think we can see how there were things in the 50s we were struggling with, grappling with that is still with us. You know, when 60 million people in this country go and vote for a man who speaks uh, in a degrading way of immigrants and of women and of people of color, it gives you pause and you have to reevaluate your own views of things that how can tens of millions of people support someone who says these things. And that's why I think the election has been so devastating for so many peoples that I guess we wanted to believe that we had made more progress than we actually had. And I think that election destabilized all of those notions because we're still dealing with these things. We're still dealing with homophobia, racism, sexism, all of it. It's all there and it's still in our country. It's still in our society. It may, it may take a different form. It may not be as virulent. It may not be as obvious, but it is still there. Something that occurred to me as I was watching this film was how much Kathy has like this life of surfaces. Everything is pretty. Everything's in its place. But then you see how that kind of life is really hollow. You know, she wears beautiful clothes. Her hair is beautiful. Her home is beautiful. The film itself is beautiful. These rich colors, beautiful textures. But there's an ugliness underneath in these people's lives and what they're struggling with how the constraints and the pressures of society and societal norms are bearing down on them and are really destroying them. They're destroying Frank in particular from the inside out. I mean, he is having like an internal crisis and a breakdown. But in, in their lives, it's really a life of hiding. They're never saying what they think or what they feel with each other. They're never getting to that substance. You know, I notice the way they eat dinner, the way they talk but say nothing how Kathy talks to her friends and doesn't really say anything. It's all surface and I think that Kathy can sense that emptiness. Maybe they all can. Maybe everybody in that time period could sense the emptiness but of course it's something that I think people struggle with now too of that disconnection from from life or from other people. I think that when Kathy is with Raymond she feels different and she can sense that something is different with him. I think their connection deepens even more when she sees him at the art exhibition. It's about modern art and there's an interesting racial moment because she seems really surprised that he's there as though she doesn't expect a black man to be cultured or to be interested in art Because she asks him why he's there. She's really shocked. He's sort of joking. But I don't know if he is. He says that he can read newspapers. Um, She seems taken aback by that at first. Like I think she's very worried that she has come off racist. And she even says to him you know I'm not prejudiced. And she um, feels the need to tell him that she and Frank believe in equal rights for the Negroes. Uh, quote unquote, that's the language that they used back then, and that they support the NAACP. You you can see a little bit of like racial tension there. Of, it's It reminds me of like every time someone says about a black person, oh they're so eloquent, they're so articulate. Well yeah, I mean <laughs> it, it, like it seems to, you always seem to hear that uh, for some reason. That white people will say that about certain black people. Oh, they're so articulate. To me, that's very coded in a way. As though black people don't know how to speak or, or something. Like, uh, that's there's like more coded language now, I think, in the way that people can talk about different races. It's not as overt. And people still have these stereotypes or these assumptions about people of other races. And we still see that. It still happens. Kathy and Raymond are together at the exhibition. She stands with him. They talk about art and stuff like that. And everybody there, everybody except Raymond is white. So he's really the only black person there. And everybody's staring at them. It was a big deal for them even to speak to each other, for them to stand together. And I really love their exchange about modern art. They're standing in front of a, a Miro painting. She says that she loves it. She says that like abstract art gives her these feelings. She, she doesn't seem to be able to quite articulate them. And Raymond says that He thinks modern art takes up where religious art left off, that you can feel like a kind of divinity in the colors and the shapes. He has this deep understanding of this art that she doesn't quite understand herself. And it was interesting to me how then they showed uh, this older woman who's talking about how she loves the old masters. I think she mentions Rembrandt. And to me, that was sort of a I don't know, I thought it was saying something like, Kathy and Raymond like the modern art. They're open to the modern art and they're maybe more aligned with an with a world that's more progressive with a changing world whereas the other white people at the exhibition especially the elderly ones the older ones much more stuck in this rigid thinking and it, with the old masters you know with the old world and the way things used to be right and they can't accept the the way the world is now and the way that it's changing I just thought that was interesting. It was like an interesting little subtle moment where here here are Kathy and Raymond really loving the modern art and then here's the older white people who uh, they prefer Rembrandt. They They prefer the different art, right? And just as Kathy was talking to Eleanor and they were talking about homosexuality and you get a sense of some of the views that people can have about gay people, Kathy has this dinner party and the subject of integration comes up. The film is set in 1957 and that is the year when uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, black students attempted to integrate Little Rock High School, but uh, the governor prevented them from doing that. And the National Guard eventually had to be called in to protect the students. It's this very shocking moment in American history. There's pictures of it where you see these white people really attacking the black students, yelling at them, just terrible things uh, that the black uh, teenagers went through to try to integrate that school. They're talking about integration You know, and one elderly woman is sitting there and saying that, oh, it's the Christian thing to do, you know, that they should, we should do integration, but worries that what happened in Little Rock could happen in Hartford. I'm not quite sure what she means. I don't know if she means, uh, you know, black people going to the schools or the violence that came from it. And then one man says that it's not possible for that to happen because there are no Negroes in Hartford. Now, of course, they're at this party and black people are right there in the room serving these guests and waiting on them. There are black people in Hartford, Connecticut. And then this white man says that. It's, it's very shocking. It shows the racism that was in the Northeast, up in New England at that time. We tend to think that views like that only existed in the South, And they did. It was terrible in the South. I would never minimize the violence, the racial violence, and the racial terror that was inflicted on Black people in the South. I'm from the South. And it is important to speak the truth about that and to never minimize it or deny it. And the issues that still exist in the South um, between White and Black people and the racism that's there. But it's also important to acknowledge That racism is widespread in this country and that it takes on many different forms. That it is in the West, it's in the South, it's in the Northeast. Nobody is free of it. Nobody is above it. And in this New England town, it's there too. That this group of people who probably consider themselves liberals, right, and look at the way that they speak about black people, look at the way they interact with black people. They claim to support equal rights, but do they really? Are they really practicing what they say? Because there's very little interaction between the black and white people, and it's still a scandal if a white woman even speaks to a black man. And of course, for me, that conjured the terrible, violent, history in the South of black men being killed and lynched because they spoke to white women or because they had consensual relationships with white women who went on to say that they were raped. And Emmett Till ended up being killed because he, I think, spoke to a white woman or whistled at a white woman. It's unclear. We get different versions of it, uh, but somehow interacted with a white woman and he ended up dead because of it. So even in the North, a black man talking to a white woman was controversial. And after that party or later that night, Frank um tries to initiate sex with Kathy because he's still going through his own issues. He can't have sex with her. He just can't do it. He's impotent when he's with Kathy. And again, it reinforced like this crisis of masculinity that I felt like he was having. And at one point, Kathy says to him, She's trying to assure him that he's the only man that she wants to be with and that she, that he can fulfill her sexual desires. And she says, quote, you're all man to me, unquote. And then Frank ends up slapping her. I thought that was an interesting phrase. You're all man to me. For Frank, it's like he has to prove his manhood that if he is gay, That he is somehow less of a man. So I also felt like this film was looking at masculinity in a really interesting way. And about how masculinity is so much tied to being straight, right? And to being white. And Raymond is sort of seen as less of a man too, because he is black, that both of these men are emasculated or as, or seen as less than because of their different, um, identities. You know, Raymond as a black man and Frank as a gay man. Both of them are, um, have to deal with that of this questioning of their manhood. And Frank in particular is struggling with that a lot. And so Kathy, he ends up hitting Kathy, So again, with Frank, is a fascinating character because, on the one hand, he's a victim. He's a victim of of this homophobia. He's a victim of this toxic masculinity, uh, this masculinity that is so rigid, right, and demands certain things from men. That they prove their manhood, that they prove they are men by dominating women, by, you know, all kinds of things. But in the process, he's in his own crisis. But in the process of that, he is violent towards Kathy. That's heartbreaking. That here he is hurting. He himself is hurting inside. And in the process, he hurts Kathy. He hurts the person who loves him, who tries to protect him. Who does everything she can for him. That just happens sometimes. It, it just does. And it, it, but it makes him a really complicated character for us. Like we feel bad that he's struggling with his homosexuality. That he can't be himself, right? But then at the same time, we hate the violence that he inflicts on Kathy. We hate the way that once he does fall in love with a man and leaves, he can so easily leave while she can't. She has to stay. She has to take care of the children, and he can go off and have his lover and start his new life. And Kathy can't do that. And Kathy has to hide the violence that he's done to her. He hits her on the head and she has to cover up the mark with her bangs. It really precipitates like a breakdown for Kathy. And Eleanor asks her about it, but she, she doesn't want to really talk about it too much. But Eleanor knows that something has happened. Kathy at first seems like she's going to go after Eleanor, like Eleanor starts to leave. Like maybe she wants to reach out. She wants to maybe talk more to Eleanor, but then she doesn't. Kathy in this film is so alone. She's going through everything by herself and she's in a time period where she can't really open up, where everything is on the surface. Everything is superficial. People don't really talk to each other. They don't really say anything to each other. They don't open up. So Kathy probably feels like she has to just keep it all inside. But there's a cost to that. And there comes a point where Kathy can't keep it bottled up. She just can't. And I think after Frank hits her and... Everything starts happening. It's just too much for her. Eleanor is walking away and Kathy just goes to the side of the house and she is just sobbing. She's sobbing uncontrollably. She's showing a level of emotion that we have not seen from Kathy until this point. And I think we've all been there. Like When I was watching this, I was like, oh my god, I've had so many moments like this. Hell, I had one this week before I recorded this episode where I was just uncontrollably uncontrollably crying and and sobbing over my life, over everything that I struggle with on a daily basis and how it just wears me down and overwhelms me and the loneliness that I feel and the grief and the pain that I feel. I've lost a lot in my life. I've been through a lot in my life. I felt, I just felt deeply for Kathy in that moment that everything was falling apart. That here we have this this woman with this perfect, beautiful wife. And then it's just crumbling in her hands. It's just crumbling. And Raymond's there and he sees her. And he's so kind to her in that moment. He just asks if there's anything he can do. And she talks about how things are just really hard with, with her husband. That she's going through things with him. And Raymond reaches out to her in that moment. And he invites her to go off with him. And at first she declines, but she later accepts it. I guess she feels like maybe it'll take her mind off things. They go and they walk in the woods. This is a really beautiful scene. And he says to her that often it's the people who are outside of our world. That we can confide in the best. And maybe that's what happens with Raymond and Kathy. Is that in their own separate worlds, they don't feel comfortable with the people around them. But when they meet each other, it's like something just clicks. Kathy tells him that once you confide in someone, then they're not really outside anymore. And I wonder if this whole film is about that process of them going from outsiders in one another's lives and outside one another's worlds into being inside one another's lives. Like, That process of someone going from a stranger to you to someone that you feel very deeply about and who you feel intertwined with in some way and who changes your life and how um, interacting with people who are different from you, who are outside of your world, can actually expand your own world. Because Kathy says that ever since the art exhibition, she's been thinking about what it must be like to be the only person of color in a room of white people. Um, You know, she'd probably never had to think about that before. She's in her little world, her little white world in Hartford, Connecticut. She's probably never thought about what it's like to be different, to stand out, to not be accepted, to feel that hostility from other people. But her interactions with Raymond have actually made her contemplate it and think about it. You know, the people in this town are very sheltered in their world, and I'm sure they rarely, if ever, think about the world of black people in that town, and they don't cross those lines to go and talk to them or sit down with them or visit with them, but Kathy does do that. You know, I'm not saying she's a perfect person or anything, but she is willing and open to someone who is different from her. And I think the film shows us the power of that, that if you are open to someone who is different from you, that it can change your life. It really can. And she goes with Raymond to this restaurant that is predominantly black. There's only black people in it. So she knows what it's like to be the the minority in a place. She's the only white woman in this restaurant. And one of the women, one of the society women, um, ends up seeing her go into that restaurant. And that will have really big consequences for Kathy. But the people at the restaurant, um, the other black people there they're not necessarily too happy or welcoming to Kathy. Not really happy that she's there. The way I saw this was that I I would think that it could possibly endanger them. If word was to get around that Kathy was there, you know, here's this white woman with a black man. The way that that could inflame white men and what they could do with that kind of knowledge, it could cause trouble for the people at that restaurant. So I could understand the hostility towards Kathy. Like, Why are you here? You know, this could get everybody in that restaurant in a lot of trouble or cause issues for them. But once they're there in the restaurant, it's actually like a lighthearted thing. They laugh. It's not, um you know, as dark as it might seem, it's actually really different than when Raymond and Kathy were at the art exhibition among just the white people. That, to me, felt much more dangerous, I guess you could say, or malevolent to me. The hostility at the black restaurant is different than the the outright, like, disgust that was at the art exhibition. Even though they might have misgivings about Kathy's presence, Kathy and Raymond still have more freedom in that space surrounded by the black people of the community than they ever had in the white space. The white world is much harsher and there is a much bigger punishment for breaking the rules in that world. In the restaurant, Kathy can talk to Raymond, she can sit with him, she can even dance with him, and people might stare, they might give ugly looks, but they're not going to become violent and attack them or anything like that. There just seems to be less at stake in that space than the one that's dominated by white people, because the white people are more violent. They have more power. They're much more hostile. Yeah, I mean, the black people in the restaurant might not like it, but they're not going to hurt raymond and kathy they're not going to get really really ugly it doesn't feel like it could be dangerous or violent in the same way there's probably just more of a fear or a worry of like oh my god what if word gets out that this white woman is in this restaurant? What could happen? And so I think it it kind of... Um, they're probably worried about that to some extent. And I think, um, you know, when they are dancing at this restaurant, I immediately thought of Ali Fear Eats the Soul by Fassbender. Because that's an important aspect of that film. That when Emmy and Ali meet, they dance. And that's how they sort of start to talk. And how they start to connect with each other. And later on in the film... Ali, Fear the Soul, them dancing is also how they continue to affirm their love and their connection with each other. So I thought it was really beautiful that Kathy and Raymond were dancing in the film. And like Ali, Fear the Soul, I think Far From Heaven really shows that connection can be found in the unlikeliest of places. That if we open ourselves up to different people, something extraordinary can happen. And I think that it's always powerful to see people connecting in this world where so many of us feel alone and are alone. And I wonder if sometimes like it gives me uh, maybe some kind of hope or something like that. I mean, for me, uh, the central thing about Far From Heaven beyond just the, you know, the racial and sexual and, uh, gender politics of the film, obviously, is the theme of connection. We just, I think we long for connection. I think we hunger and we ache for it. And I think that when we don't receive it or feel it, it can destroy us. The film taps into how much we long for connection and really looks at maybe those fleeting moments when we do find it. It's like we're struck by lightning. It's like our bodies, are made of electricity, when we do experience some kind of connection, which can be really rare for some of us, especially, you know, I'm I'm speaking for myself right now, really, but when you encounter it, it's electric, because for so long, it seems impossible, but here it is for a second, and it always ends. It's never a permanent thing. We feel it, we feel that connection, and then we lose it, and then I think we long for it the rest of our lives, this is the central struggle for so many of us to find that person or those people who we can reveal everything to, who know us in the deepest way. Those with whom we no longer have to skim or pretend or stay on the surface with. You know, I think of the the song Shallow by Lady Gaga from A Star is Born and how that song reaches people because what it's saying is... It's about connection, I think, because there's that lyric, we're far from the shallow now. And I've always interpreted as we're far from superficiality. Like we're in the depths. We're in connection that's real and enormous and all consuming. That's what's always been beautiful to to me about that song is we're far from the shallow now. We're in the deep end, (laughs) me and you. And that's rare. Not everybody gets to have that. Or I think of like this Tori Amos song. Y'all know I love Tori Amos. She is my everything. She is my goddess. And she has this song called Hey Jupiter. It's from her Boys for Pelé album. I love a few of the lyrics in it. One of them is, quote, and I thought I wouldn't have to be with you a magazine. And then another, quote, and I thought you wouldn't have to keep with me hiding unquote. You should listen to the song. It's beautiful. But those lyrics have always hit me so hard. You know, when she says that, that I thought I wouldn't have to be with you a magazine. Like she's saying, I didn't think I had to pretend with you. I didn't think I had to be something that I wasn't. And I think real human connection is about not having to be anything other than what you are. And it's just so rare to find people where you can express all of that. Where People truly know who you are. You don't have to hide. You don't have to. You you think about all the hiding that happens in this film. Frank hiding his sexuality. Kathy hiding her bruises. You know, Kathy hiding her relationship with Raymond. But they're always being watched. There's always this fear that, that it's going to be revealed. That this deep, dark secret of who they really are is going to be seen, and it's going to be judged, and it's going to be, you know, you're going to be destroyed by it, you know, and you're going to be shunned. Always that danger and that fear. I think that Kathy finds real connection with Raymond. I really do. And you see it when they're dancing together. You see it when they're talking to each other. I think that when they dance, that's the point when they've truly connected at that restaurant. And it's really the point of no return. It's the first time that they've really touched each other in an intense way when they dance with each other. And of course word spreads that her and Raymond have gone to this restaurant together and um, the hypocrisy of this town is clear. They claim that they believe in equal rights. They claim that they support the NAACP but the moment a white woman speaks to a black man these people become vultures and they are tearing them apart. It was unacceptable even in the north. And unfortunately, Kathy herself becomes a hypocrite. She had no problem talking to Raymond or dancing with Raymond. But once she gets blowback for it, once she feels like her reputation is going to be tarnished, she denies it all. She denies it to Eleanor. She denies it to Frank. She is not willing to tell the truth and to face the the consequences of it. Because really, if you think about it, the historical forces at work are much larger than her and Raymond. She's trapped in it. She's trapped in this world. It goes back to Haynes' quote earlier where he talked about how Cirque made these films about people who were not heroic. People who were trapped in their circumstances. They were trapped in this narrow world and they didn't have any way out of it. I guess if it was a heroic film, you know, Kathy and Raymond would be together. That's how it would end. But that's not the way it ends. Because these melodramas and these woman's pictures as well, they're about ordinary people. These are not heroic people. These are people profoundly trapped in their lives with few options to to get out of it. Because what is against Raymond and Kathy is so massive. They can't move it. They can't do it. The cost is too much for them to bear. She's trapped in it. So is Raymond and just as Frank is trapped in a homophobic society. None of them have power in this film. They hurt each other. Frank hurts Kathy, but they just can't be together. And if you think about it, Raymond hurts Kathy a bit. You know, if you think about the ending when Kathy, and I'm going to talk about the ending in a moment, where she goes and she wants to visit Raymond once he's going to move. He nips that in the bud. It's not going to happen. So I think maybe she has these illusions or these fantasies that her and Raymond could be together, but he's not, he's not in that place. And he's probably much smarter for that, that he knows there's just no way that they can do this. But it's really Kathy who calls everything off. She calls Raymond for them to meet. At first they meet at this diner. They can't even do that. They're being watched the whole time there's these white men in the diner who basically want them to leave. Um, So there's nowhere that they can really be together without being watched and judged and made to feel unwanted. So even though they care for each other, you just imagine this would be the rest of their lives constantly under that pressure, constantly under that microscope. And so she's the one that tells Raymond, you know, it isn't plausible, she says, for her to be friends with him. She says that she's been reckless and foolish. He questions that. He says, what's so foolish about it? Why is it fool?" You know, I'm paraphrasing him in this scene. He says, why is it foolish to think that two people could reach out to one another and look beyond the surface of things? And she wonders if we ever really do see beyond the surface and Raymond thinks that it's possible, that you could, that it does happen, and um, Kathy starts to cry, and, and even in this moment of, like, connection, uh, the world impinges on it, because Kathy's turning to leave, and Raymond grabs her arm, and a white man, just out of nowhere, yells out, boy, to Raymond, which is very disrespectful to call a grown man boy. And yet that did happen a lot, especially in the South, where black men would be referred to as boy. It's a way to put them in their place, right? And he says, hands off, you know, and it's just this terrible moment where we see, we see the way the world sees the two of them, that they don't see each other that way. You know, that's the thing, um... Raymond and Kathy are able to see each other and just see one another, to just see another person. Or Frank, you know, when he's with a man, I'm sure, to him that's just something loving and beautiful and, you know, the desire that he feels for another man's body, it's not unnatural to him. It's to Kathy and Raymond, there's nothing deviant about what they're doing. They care for each other. They feel a connection to each other. But over and over again, they're reminded how the world sees them, how the world is disgusted and repulsed by them, and it's a constant reminder to them that something is wrong with them in the eyes of society, and that's so heartbreaking. They can never just be who they are, and that is one of the most pernicious, horrific things about racism, is the way that it doesn't allow people of color to just live their lives on a daily basis, to go into a store Without being followed by the person that works there. To not be able to drive a car without being stopped by the police. That all these small moments that accumulate throughout their lives and their day are weighed down with dread and fear. And I don't think we talk about that enough with racism. And it's something that as a white woman, I will never be able to fully comprehend because I don't have to live it in the same way. But I do think about it and I just, like, what do you say? What do you do? So we have these characters who just can never be themselves. They're never free to be themselves. And that is so destructive to the soul and the body, I think, to constantly feel like something is wrong with you and that society thinks that you are disgusting, that you are inhuman or subhuman, and that they do not see you as a person equal to them. that You are always less than. And that's something that minorities, whether people of color or queer people and different groups have to deal with on a regular basis. So Christmas comes, the new year comes, they ring in 1958. Kathy and Frank go to a resort in Miami. There is this scene where this little boy, he's black, he goes and gets in the pool and like people are in the pool and they're like horrified. They're like running out of the pool. His dad comes and is chastising him. It's, it's a really heartbreaking scene and the little boy leaves. But it made me think when I was watching it. That's the thing. It's like when you see photos from the 1950s or photos from the past or whatever decade back then, you know, the fashion's beautiful, The photos and the movies are beautiful. But that beauty actually hides a dark and violent reality that was happening at that very time, which was segregation, racial violence, inequality, racial terror against black people and other minorities, but particularly black people. It was always there and people tolerated it. Or if they were white. Like Kathy and Frank, they ignored it. They didn't have to think about it because it was out of sight, out of mind. You know, Kathy and Frank see this scene of this little black boy getting in the pool and and then they just go back to what they were talking about before. Kathy goes back to reading her magazine because for them it's out of sight out of mind and films kept it that way. They rarely made Americans at that time confront the reality of racism. I think of course Cirque was trying to make some of that visible like an Imitation of Life. Far From Heaven pays homage to those films as we know from that time period but I think Far From Heaven is obviously able to be more biting more Critical, more confrontational about the racial divisions at that time. But then I think also that the film gives us a lot to think about. I think about our own time that we live in and the way things might have changed or not changed. And eventually, Raymond's daughter gets attacked at school. These white boys throw a rock at her. Kathy and Frank come back from their vacation. And at first, Sybil, the maid played by Vi- Viola Davis, does not tell Kathy who the little girl was they just hear that a little girl got hit in the head with a rock and and all of that but they don't know that it's Raymond's daughter so some time goes by uh Frank has like a breakdown and admits that he's fallen in love and that he wants a divorce from Kathy and Kathy's world just falls apart I think and he, even in front of her, says that he never thought he could, like, feel this kind of love. Which is obviously an admission that he did not love Kathy. And it's just heartbreaking. You know, she, she basically has to hear that her whole life has been a lie. That he never really loved her. You feel bad for Frank, but God, you hate him too. You're like... Why have you, why do you have to hurt Kathy this way? Oh, you're you're so ambivalent about Frank, I think, because it just tears Kathy apart. And like I said before, he can go off. He can start a new life with his new lover. Kathy has to stay. She has to take care of the children. She has to try to make a new life as a divorced woman, which is not easy. And then there's this beautiful scene where Kathy's talking to Eleanor, her friend, the one played by Patricia Clarkson, and she opens up, she tells her about the divorce, and then she says that the only person she's been able to talk to through all of the turmoil was Raymond. She said she could open up to him and that he made her, quote, feel alive somewhere, unquote, and that she often thinks about him and wonders what he's doing, and Eleanor is absolutely horrified by this. You know, here is Kathy opening up in this moment. She's being vulnerable And instead of receiving any kind of support, she's getting scorned and and judged. But I thought that was really beautiful when Kathy said that he made her feel alive. I think her interactions with Raymond sort of, not only does she feel connected to him, I think she feels connected to herself again she feels alive inside of herself again. Maybe for so long she was numb. Maybe, you know, she was taking care of the kids and dealing with Frank and just going through the motions and then she meets Raymond and she feels an authentic connection and it's almost like she's sort of reborn, I think, through Raymond. Sybil finally tells Kathy that it was Raymond's daughter And Kathy rushes over to Raymond's house, but they have to, she goes to the door, but he tells her to meet him on the side of the house. They have to sort of talk in private because he's been receiving rocks and stuff through the windows or thrown at his house. But it's not from the white people in the town, it's from the other black people in his community. So everybody is against this relationship. There's really nowhere they can go to be together. And his reputation has been hurt in the town. So is hers. And he's he's going to move. He's going to move to Baltimore, try to start over. People won't hire him. It's cost him a lot to be involved with Kathy. And this is when Kathy brings up like, oh, could I visit you in Baltimore? Because she says that she's getting a divorce. And he just says that it's not a good idea. He says that he's learning his lesson about, quote, mixing in other worlds, unquote. And you and you get the sense that the cost is just too great to the both of them of trying to have an interracial relationship. It's, it's just too much. Like I said, these are not heroic people. These are not people who are going to buck the system and, you know, take all of that on. They are just ordinary people who want to live their lives and, and get through day by day. They just can't do it. Oh God, this scene. He places his hand on her shoulder. He tells her, have a proud life, a splendid life. And then he kisses her hand. Oh, I mean, this is something that's really beautiful about this genre, about this aesthetic that Haynes does is that you don't see that in movies now where these subtle gestures can evoke such powerful emotions. Because when he put his hand on her shoulder, I immediately thought of David Lean's brief encounter from 1945 when it's about two people who are married to other people and they fall in love with each other and they want to be together but they're they're too good they're too moral and they don't want to hurt their spouses and break up their families they don't end up being together and there's this scene when they're parting and he he puts his hand on her shoulder in the film and it's just, it's just this moment of such intense emotion. Like it's overwhelming when Raymond does that, you know, he's saying everything in that one gesture, you know, everything that they can't say in words, right? is in that moment when he kisses her hand. And I also thought of a scene in another Todd Haynes film called Carol. And that's a really big hit for Todd a um, few years ago. And there's this scene where I think Kate Blanchett puts her hand on Rooney Mora's shoulder. And it's this very powerful scene. Um, so I just loved that. And Kathy goes home and sobs. She's so alone. Like I said, she's a very lonely woman. No husband now. No friends and she can't even be with the man that she so deeply connects to. And now I have to end with the final scene. It's just, you know, she knows Raymond's gonna leave. She knows the date that he's gonna leave, and um, she goes to the train station. And I have to admit, when, I'm pretty sure when I watched the film the first time, I sobbed, and it had the same effect on me. Like, watching it a second time to do this episode, I got so emotional. There's a point at which the film starts to get really, really good. Like, you know, the first half of the film is sort of establishing things, and but once Raymond and Kathy really start to get into the their relationship, like their connection with each other, it gets so intense and so emotional. Like one scene after another, it just builds and builds. You know, the scene when they go to the restaurant and then the scene where she goes and and he puts his hand on her shoulder and you just so like, you're in it. You know, that's what melodrama, that's what I love about melodrama is like, it sweeps you away, and I also feel like I just love emotion in films. I love art that is emotional, and and this whole podcast, her head in films itself. My whole mission is to talk about the emotional power of cinema. That's all I'm trying to do. You know, I'm just sitting here with a microphone. I still can't believe anybody listens to it. Um, I, I why are you listening to me? I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> It's just about the emotional power of these films for me. That's all I'm trying to communicate in each episode. And then I hope that it raises questions for you about your own emotional relationship to films or to any other art form. Because art for me is emotional. I think in everyday life, we have to hide our emotions. When you're at work, when you're at the post office, when you're at the bank or the grocery store, you have to just be your normal self, right? You you can't cry. You can't break down. Usually your interactions with people are pretty shallow and superficial. It's small talk. It's the weather. It's so rare that you get to engage with your emotional life, with your feelings. And for me, art is a space to do that. Art is a space separate from everyday life. It can comment, it can reflect, it can engage with real life and everyday life. But for me, art is apart from it and separate from it. And it is a space for me to explore my memories, my emotions, my subjectivity, my feelings. All of that is what art is for me. That's why I write, it's why I read poetry. It's why I watch cinema, because I want to have those emotional experiences. I want to have deep, deep emotional experiences. That is what life is to me. That's what art is to me. I am I just, I feel very connected to my emotions. So that's why I love melodrama, because they are emotional, you know, and I love that. I will always love that. So this, this final scene is just, oh my God. She goes to the train station where she knows Raymond is. And she wears that same lavender scarf that he had found for her all those months ago when it blew off her head. And I love how the film is told through these different objects, like the scarf. At one point, Raymond gave her this branch that had some leaves on it. There's often mirrors in the film too, like Kathy's looking in the mirror She's always looking at herself, observing herself, but maybe she's also having to confront herself at the same time. She arrives at the train station and she sees Raymond with his daughter. At first, Raymond doesn't see her. He gets on the train and then he ends up seeing her and she's just standing there. There's this look that passes between them. (sighs) Like I can see it now. Like it's a look that is, it says what is wordless. It says what is unspeakable and can never be spoken between two people. But it is just full of the longing and the pain and everything that passed between them. Um, All that they felt for each other. All that they meant to each other is in that look. And there is the pain and the anguish of the loss of losing each other. And of never knowing what could have been. All the social forces that kept them apart. She looks at him like she's drowning. And she wants him to save her. But he can't. They can't save each other. They're both caught in a world that they can't fight. And that they can't change. And they just give this slight wave to each other. And then the train leaves. It's such a quick scene. It doesn't linger. It's not in slow motion. It doesn't last very long. And it's the look between them will have to last them the rest of their lives. And she's just standing there and then the train disappears and she walks back to her car. She walks back to her life, to a life that she's going to have to rebuild. And you know that she will. Kathy is made of a very tough substance. So is Raymond. They're both tough. He's going to go. He's going to make a life with this little girl in Baltimore and give her a good life and Kathy's gonna raise her children and they're all gonna make it but they're not but they're gonna be scarred and wounded as a result of what has happened. That look that passes between her and Raymond it just I can't get over it like just thinking about it because you can tell she just so desperately wants to be with him. She so desperately doesn't want to lose that connection that she had and it's like it makes me so emotional as you can tell. Like that's real for me. I think a lot of us have been there. Maybe you've been in love with someone and it didn't work out or you couldn't be with them or maybe you felt a connection to somebody and you know just as a friendship or something like that and and you lost it for whatever reason or it didn't work out. The loss of connection, the loss of intimacy, the loss of something that saved you at a certain time in your life can be devastating. It just can be. This film just gets to me. I, I didn't know. I didn't know how it would affect me all these years later, and I found that it still had such an emotional potent, potency and power. And I just still feel so dev- devastated by that final scene. Even as I talk about it, I've gone on long enough. <laughs> I've talked about Douglas Sirk and melodrama and women's pictures and uh, Fassbender and connection and race and sexuality and gender and this film has it all. And not to mention, it's one of the most gorgeous films I've ever seen. Some of the most beautiful fashion I've ever seen as well. I gotta, I gotta give that to the film as well. Just. I was taking so many screenshots, the colors, the the sets or the locations. I think it was shot on location. Everything about it was perfect. It was just perfect. And Julianne Moore was pregnant while they filmed this as well. And uh so I just thought I'd mention that and she she is so beautiful in the film. It's very beautiful performance by her. The woman should have a million Oscars by now, okay? She should have got one for Safe. She should have got one for Far From Heaven. She should have got one for The Hours. Like, she should just have so many Oscars right now. She's got one, yeah, okay, but she should have like ten. <laughs> she, she does just these stunning performances, and I love her. I love Julianne Moore so much. Uh, I love this film, And uh, I hope that you enjoyed my discussion of it. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.